Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. When the world asks you to shrink, expand. That's advice Elaine Weltroth is apt to give to the thousands of young women who follow her every move on social media. It's also the philosophy that's currently guiding her life and helping to move out any barriers in her way. As editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, Elaine was the youngest ever person to hold the title in Connie Nast's history, not to mention only the second black editor-in-chief at the company. Under her, Teen Vogue became so much more than a fashion magazine. It became an oasis of diversity and a place for the thoughtful analysis of timely political and cultural issues her younger audience had been craving. Teen Vogue's evolution into a progressive political and cultural publication surprised many. Most famously, Tucker Carlson, who sniffed that it should stick to writing about thigh-high boots. But to Elaine, it's not a contradiction that teenage girls would or could care about face masks and fiscal policy, or that they yearned for more diverse faces and voices across their social media. In fact, she very accurately intuited that serving Generation Z's intellect and sense of social responsibility was just table stakes for a media brand these days. As Elaine put it, she was determined to create the magazine that she needed growing up. Elaine left the position in 2018 and is now a judge on the revamped Project Runway and the author of her first book, a memoir titled More Than Enough, claiming space for who you are no matter what they say. In it, she shares the earlier struggles that ultimately shaped her, from some harsh lessons in love to navigating the caught-between-two-worlds feeling of being mixed race. In many ways, claiming space is what Elaine does best, weaving together a cohesive whole out of the disparate threads of her own identity, doing her best to embrace every part of herself, and encouraging the rest of us, no matter how impossible or scary it is, to do the same. Elaine Weltroth, it is so nice to have you on Unstyled today. Thank you so much for being here. It is so nice to be here and to see your face. This is a full circle moment. I feel like I had a prescient moment with you where we really like saw the future together. Can I tell the story? Please. Like actually my heart started beating harder when you said that because that's how special that moment was. And we've never revisited it since. We knew of each other, Mm -hmm. sort of orbited each other in the same kind of world And you came to have a meeting with me about Mm -hmm. a possible opportunity at Refinery29. I mean, it would have been incredible to hire you, but I remember sitting down with you in that moment and you and I had never actually had like a formal meeting where we were really getting to know each other, kind of talking about our mutual hopes and dreams. And I could tell how enthusiastic you were about the conversation we were having, but I said, and I've never said this to anybody, I was like, I just can't see you sitting behind a desk. (laughs) I said, I just see you on television. Do you remember that? I remember it. And this is before anybody, when was this, like 2016 or 2017? It was before that. Maybe it was earlier than that? No, because I was appointed editor of Teen Vogue in 2016. This was well before that. I just knew that you would have felt 
restricted in a position like that. That's obviously super creative for a lot of people, but it was so clear that you were like busting out of this suit that you'd been wearing for a long time. It was already revealing to me. And it's so interesting now when I see you on television offering up your insights to young fledgling designers on Project Runway. I'm like, wow, it's really interesting. But I think you knew it and I think you were already projecting this searching kind of spirit. You knew that there was something else. I mean, it's so interesting that you bring that story up because as I was walking up the hallway, it flashed back into my mind. It feels like a full circle moment. But it's so interesting because here I was thinking that I was coming on an interview and ultimately it felt like I actually went to go see an oracle. (laughs) I think you said to me, you have a bigger future than you realize and your eyes filled with tears. I know. I think I I might have gotten emotional. I do that occasionally, and I'm much mushier now since having a baby, but I just really feel very serious when I feel like someone's tapping into their reason for being here. You can feel it when you're around those people. You definitely can. Well, that moment was very rare to have in an interview for sure, but it was something that was one of those good omens that I think puts you on the path you're supposed to be on. You know, I think sometimes we don't realize that the doors that close are actually closing to help redirect us in the direction that we are meant to go in. And sometimes we don't even have the ability to dream big enough for our potential. And we need women, sisters, mothers, best friends, bosses to reflect back to us just how big we can be or how special our future is. In that moment, I was so moved by that. You don't even know how that stuck with me. But I can look back over the course of my career and literally pinpoint moments where it was a woman who saw in me something I could not see in myself and helped redirect me onto the path that I'm actually on now. And I would not be where I am if it had not been for women seeing me and pushing me along and helping me and sharing tools with me along the way, because I really don't think that the world prepares women for the bigness of our possibilities. It takes other women to help us see that sometimes. And so you were one of those women for me. And it's so cool to kind of be here now on the other side, what, five years later or so with my book and, you know, know. with all the things that have happened since. It's sort of nice to kind of take stock, take inventory of just how much both of us have been able to accomplish since then. Like I do remember when you walked out of the office, I was like, God, I think I might have fucked up. <laughs> I might have fucked up because I was like thinking like, <laughs> I almost talked you out of the position. I felt like when you left, we had a good vibe and yeah. we were in a good place together. But I knew that I had successfully discouraged you from thinking about that job because I just remembered that I've been in jobs where I've felt really out of place. And I think there's nothing actually worse than being in a position where you feel like you have a lot of potential and you can't exercise it. You can't actually use it and it's just stifled. And there's just nothing more frustrating Mm -hmm. and tough than that. I've been there too, by the way. I've had jobs where they were not the right fit for me and there is nothing worse than waking up every morning dreading going to the office. There's nothing worse than that. And I've been there. And I think for most of us, you have to know what that's like in order to understand 
when you're in the right place. You know, you kind of yeah. need something to compare it to. You do. Uh, and I think that's what happens over time. That's how you start to hone your instincts. That's how you can start to hear that voice. But it takes trial and error to get where you're supposed to go. So I get it. When I was an intern at Ogilvy and Mather, I have to tell you, I was such a terrible employee. I was falling asleep in meetings. And that's not like me. I'm like such a go-getter. got to go to meetings. I know. I got to go to them. And then I was falling asleep in them. It just wasn't the right fit. Yeah. And I remember thinking, if I'm going to spend the rest of my life at a desk reporting to a job and I'm going to invest more hours at that job than anything else, I have to love it. Because I felt like I was slowly dying every day. Yes, you know, I felt like I was shrinking. Like. I felt like my, I was losing my voice. I was losing my light. I was shrinking, shriveling. Then stepping into this career path, like that very first day on the job when I got this opportunity to be on set with Serena Williams for Ebony Magazine, I cannot tell you how alive I felt. I was almost levitating. I was on. I knew what to say. I knew how to contribute, how to add value. I just knew my role. I assumed it almost just intuitively. And it was so opposite from how I felt in some of those earlier experiences in the work world where I was like, I feel like an alien here. (laughs) I feel like no one understands me. I feel like no one sees me. I feel like I have nothing to say or to contribute a value. And there's just nothing worse. If you're in this position, if anyone's listening to this right now and you are feeling this way, Please, please, please know that it gets so much better than that. But you have to be brave enough to recognize when you're on the wrong path. And I don't know if I would even position it as the wrong path, but not the right path, not the path that you really want to be on that's going to allow you to thrive. And a lot of times you have to go through that. You have to take that detour in order to get to the next station. Yep. And there's a lot of value that you can learn through some of those difficulties. But I always find it super helpful to just like make lists with friends and thinking of all the alternative things I can do in this moment right now. Because even just talking about the possibilities of change with friends just lifts you out of that Mm. stuckness and that desperation. And I think that it does actually start to move things, just talking about it and just being honest that you feel stuck and that you feel like Mm -hmm. something somewhere led you in a different direction and you just need to redirect, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And what you find in those isolating moments when you finally open up, you realize that everyone has been there. Oh, yeah. We just don't talk about it. Yeah. And we would all be better for sharing with each other how we made it through certain life transitions because they're not easy and it's not easy to figure out your path. It's a weird time to be a woman. It's a weird time, but also the best, most important, most crucial time to be a woman with a voice. Absolutely. I always say that this is the best time to be a woman and to be empowered. We chose it. We chose this time to be here, to be able to project our messages out to people that we know need to hear them. My mom raised me to live out loud and to live out my dreams on behalf of all the women in my lineage who were not afforded these opportunities. This notion that every time a girl is born, they are born with limitless, infinite possibilities. But the world sort of starts to chip away at that confidence that we're all born with. And if we're lucky, we have the opportunity to hit an inflection point where we can 
fight back to regain who we were supposed to be. And throughout history, there have been so many systems of oppression that have worked against women and made it so that they never got the opportunity to realize their full potential. And so as a black woman today, my mom has made it clear for me from the time I came out the womb that I am here to take it farther than anyone in our family ever could have. That is a responsibility. That is an expectation. That is an obligation. So chasing my dream is not a selfish act. It is a act that I'm doing proudly on behalf of my ancestors as an example for other people who are coming behind me, who will take it even further than me. So we have a real purpose being here in this moment as women and us as women in media. There's a real opportunity to change things for the better, but we have, we have work to do. We got work to do. We have so much work to do. It's kind of daunting thinking about how much work we have to do. It never ends. And it's important because we don't want to waste any time. I don't want to waste any time. Your mother really made a point of making sure that you had a very important education growing up in terms of just like entertainment, pop culture, feminism. And there's something like she made you watch Mm -hmm. black sitcoms. Mm -hmm. Like, tell me a little bit about that. Well, my mom definitely wanted me to be literate in black culture. She was very conscious of the fact that she was raising a little brown girl in a very white world. And it was important to her that I had a strong sense of identity as a black woman. She and my dad had decided before I was even born that I was going to identify as black. And when that census form came around every year as it did in school, that I was going to check black. And that was important for both of them and ultimately as parents to protect me. So part of that cultural literacy was buying me black dolls exclusively. She refused to buy me white dolls because she did not want me to be raised with this complex about not feeling good enough, pretty enough. She didn't want me to go through this want to be white complex that so many people of color all over the world experience because of the beauty standards that permeate the media. And so she just made sure that I had examples of beautiful, strong, sensitive, successful black women in her circle. But the sad part is that no matter what a mother does or a parent does to insulate their child with a sense of self-esteem and security and their identity, ultimately the world will push back against those messages. And I found myself grappling with my identity at many points in my upbringing. Were there any events or any situations that really triggered that? There are so many. I mean, I think from a very early age of never really feeling black enough or white enough, you know, coming from an interracial family, my mom made sure that every Saturday and Sunday we were immersed in black culture. We didn't live in a black neighborhood. We lived in a white neighborhood, but on Saturdays we'd spend it in a black hair salon with her getting her hair done. And you'd go to a Baptist church, And then we went to a Baptist church on Sunday. And because Monday through Friday I was in an all-white world with all-white friends, suddenly being dropped into this black world on Sundays, I just felt like 
a little bit of an oddity. Not so much as my brother, though. I'm a bit of a chameleon, a bit of a social chameleon, and I feel like I have a desire to fit in. Some of that comes from being a woman and just this likability complex that we all grapple with. My brother was not born with that. My Mm -hmm. brother is a punk rocker. He is a black or mixed race punk rocker. So he was really rejected by the black community. And I learned from that and I sort of assimilated to whatever environment or whatever social cues were a part of that environment that I was in. But in terms of a story that sticks out for me early on, I remember always, by the way, being the token black friend, not ever noticing it or calling it that, being conscious of it that way until race became a factor. And I do remember this very specific slumber party in eighth grade when I was with my best friends who all happened to be white. And by the way, these are the same best friends that I have to this day. But the N-word was used by one of my best friends. Who's still your best friend. Who's still my best friend. We worked through it. You can work through it. (laughs) I think we live in cancellation culture where we are so quick to cancel people for making mistakes. And and I'm not saying that using the N-word is in any way appropriate or acceptable or even forgivable in some situations. But we were in junior high and this was somebody who was raised by people from the South in a very segregated place Mm -hmm. and where racism thrives in ways that are more very acceptable, very acceptable. And this kind of language is used, right? So this is a girl who I was thick as thieves with. And so when this happened, I think we were living under this like veil that we don't see race. Well, you don't see race until you do. Yeah. (laughs) And that veil was lifted very early on for me. And once that... And you were teenagers? I was. We were in junior high. And so once that happens, you kind of never forget that. And you never allow yourself to feel as safe in a world that has made it clear that you're not exactly a part of it. You know, you're not exactly... You'll never actually be fully safe from something like that happening again. So I think it's important to also say that we worked through that. We have found forgiveness and gone on to be lifelong friends. But it certainly impacts your walk through the world. And it certainly impacts your search for safe spaces. Mm -hmm. And until that point, I actually had never had a black friend or a best black friend. I was always the token So it actually set me on this path of really wanting to connect with the black community in a more meaningful way and to find black friends, find my way into it. And so in my book, I actually have a chapter called Black Table, where it's like this reckoning with my racial identity and wanting to sit at the black table and like feeling a little bit iced because I was this black girl that was hanging out with all the white girls and trying to cross over wasn't easy. And I felt almost this onus of having to prove my blackness proving that I could dance, proving that I'm not square. And then that kind of code switching of then going into corporate America later on in my life and having to learn how to wear different masks and speak a different language to be accepted and respected and given the opportunity to climb the rank. So identity is tricky. It's like a tangled braid, you know, and we all are striving to detangle all of these things.
The Unstyled podcast was made possible by Estee Lauder, the eponymous luxury beauty brand created by one of the world's first women entrepreneurs. As a confident rule breaker ahead of her time, Mrs. Estee Lauder once said, if you push yourself beyond the furthest place you think you can go, you'll be able to achieve your heart's dream. In her entrepreneurial pursuit, she invented disruptive opportunities to connect directly with her customers in a personal way that altered the beauty industry forever. Learn more. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. More about how Estee Lauder is continuing her legacy in store and online at estelauder.com. Tell us a story about Harriet, my fairy godmother, Harriet. So, ah, if there is one woman apart from my mother who I owe credit for being where I am, it's Harriet Cole. She is someone whose career inspired me from the very beginning. She sort of gave me a rough blueprint for this path that I'm on. Coming into my senior year of college, I hit a true existential crisis where I felt real anxiety about what the hell I was going to do with my life. And no one prepares you for that. So if you're listening and you're in college, you know what I'm talking about. If you are a senior, your whole path is prescribed up until that senior year. And then it's like, good luck. Yeah. And you feel like you're- Everything's up to you. Everything's up to you suddenly. And you feel like you're on the edge of the world and there's just like this big black abyss below. And so that reality hit me really hard. I think that's why some people actually go and get their master's. They're like, I'm going to stay here a little longer. They're like, I'm not ready for that yet. (laughs) It's too real out there. I went on this soul searching mission to figure out why I'm here. What is the path I'm supposed to be on? And I went into deep prayer and I found myself in this Google rabbit hole, I was Googling, like, what do I do with my life? (laughs) How do I work at a magazine? How do you get a magazine internship? And I realized over time that, you know, my biggest goal at that point that I was too afraid to even say out loud was that I wanted to work at Essence Magazine. That is the magazine that raised me. That is the magazine that gave me examples of the kind of woman I could be, I could aspire to be. And so I finally decided to put together this crazy intern application that I was so extra about. I did like a video. I did I had like NDR replaying in the background that was not part of the instructions. Are you kidding? Yeah, I like was so extra. And I'm so glad this happened before YouTube because that video is a hot mess. <laughs> there's like... That's there's like, like an bro- audition. That's like an audition, audition video. Yes, yeah. there's like broken blinds in the background. But anyway, I found it when I was moving and it's I watched impressive. it and I like I'm cried impressed. laughing. But anyway, so I went over the top to get this interview because I was like, this is my calling. I'm supposed to work at Essence Magazine. So after that, I sort of leaned back in my chair after spending like 12 hours psychotically Googling what I'm going to do with my future. And I see this magazine with Alicia Keys on the cover. And 
I didn't even look at the title. I just went straight to the cover story. I read this story, and then at the end, it said it was written by a woman named Harriet Cole, I'd never heard of. But something in that moment, and this is after like three months of praying desperately for some sign, some direction for like where I'm meant to go, that I almost audibly hear and feel, reach out to her, email her, find this woman. And I swear it sounds so woo-woo and kooky and not to me. Unbelievable. But this is the singular moment in my life. I'm first in line for all of that. I'm just telling <laughs> you that that's that's where I'm at. Yeah, that's that's my life. That's where you're vibrating. Yes, exactly. So you can meet me there. So I will say I was raised in the church. I was raised to be a faith-driven person, but it isn't until you have a real experience with God that you know that you know that you know that God is real. And it has to happen for you on a personal level. For me, this was my first experience with God. I was like, there is no other reason that I would hear and feel that so strongly. And for that to ultimately lead to my big break into an industry that I've had the opportunity to thrive in at a rate and pace that I could have never even dreamed for myself. So I Google Harriet and I read her bio. She was a magazine editor at Essence for 11 years and became the fashion director. She had multiple best-selling books. Mm -hmm. She had what is the modern equivalent of a podcast, but it was something different in those days. But they just called it a radio, radio show. Yeah, it was just a radio show that was naturally <laughs> they just syndicated. Called it a good old you know. radio show. Ultimately, what she had figured out how to do is how to be her authentic self, which put her at the intersection of style, spirituality, and black culture, which was a lane she had carved out for herself. And then she was able to, once she got the experience and the runway of working and the foundation of working for a corporate structure at a magazine like Essence, then she was able to kind of create her own value across and tell stories across multiple mediums. And when I read that, I knew this is the woman I want to be like. I finally felt like I had a role model for my career that brought every gift that I had or any talent or any dream all into one vision. And I think up until that point, I felt really restricted by the opportunities that existed, the titles that I had to choose from. I feel like we're asked when we're younger, like, what do you want to be? As if there's one thing you get to be, like there's one title that's going to define you for the rest of your life or one career path. But we don't live in a world like that anymore. And I don't know that we ever should have. Your life is a series of dreams realized and you should plan for a multi-dimensional career that will evolve and you should be starting out with a long-term game plan, especially if you want to work in media at this moment, by the way. So I stalked Harriet. I stalked her because I just knew I had to speak with her. And I really put all my eggs in one basket, which I wouldn't recommend to anyone else. But I put all my eggs in the basket with Harriet and I just harassed her and her, her assistant until I was able to get on her calendar. And we had this informational interview that I told her at the end of it, I said, if there's ever an opportunity to work with you, I would love for you to think of me. And then we hung up. I was like, I'm never going to hear from her again. And it's totally fine because I'm on fire now. I know where I'm going. I'm going to make it happen by any means necessary. And five months later, when I had landed the Essence internship that I thought was like my biggest dream in life. 
And I was 30 days out from moving to New York to work for Essence in the work and wealth section because I was too afraid to ask for fashion and beauty, which I was I was fine with. I was like, I'm fine. I'll, I'll be the janitor if you'll, if you'll let mm-hmm. me be the janitor. So I'm 30 days out from moving to New York to work as an intern at Essence, my biggest dream. And then out of the blue, Harriet Cole calls my cell phone. And at the time, I was working a random front desk job at a digital media company in San Francisco and waitressing nights and evenings to save all my money to move to New York. And I'm like, this has to be a butt dial. And it wasn't. It was Harriet Cole telling me that she was looking for an assistant and that she had an opportunity in L.A. for me to come down and meet her and work with her on set. Of course, I meet her. Of course, I say yes. I go down. Your mom drives you. My mom drives me, which is like the sweetest There's a really sweet story in the book about that. And I show up and it turns out that it's a cover shoot with Serena Williams, which she did not mention when she said, could you come down? I'll pay you 250 to assist me. Greatest female athlete of all time. Of all time. I bow down. I mean, I was so shook when I was on set. I literally felt like I was the black Lauren Conrad and there was nothing (laughs) I couldn't do. I was like, (laughs) it is all happening, people. And Again, that moment of feeling alive and on and just completely aligned with my purpose, it was the first time I'd felt that. At the end of that shoot, that was a fateful turning point in my career. I mean, my non-existent career hadn't started yet, but at the end of that shoot, she offered me the job, which meant that I had to call Essence back after groveling to get that internship and tell them, I'm going to go with your competitor and I'm going to start at Ebony. Not because I was a fan of Ebony at the time and I had grown up with the magazine, It's not really for young, fashionable girls. It's more traditional. It's more traditional for black families, Mm -hmm. black culture. At the time, it was like sort of your your dusty auntie and uncle's Mm -hmm. magazine. Not that your family is dusty, but the magazine was a little bit dusty. Anyway, and so I decided to start my career at Ebony, even when everyone told me that was a mistake. But I did it because I knew that working with a woman like Harriet every day and learning from her was going to ultimately enrich my experience and put me on a trajectory that no one else could. And I felt that really, really strongly. And and so I think the lesson for me in that was don't chase the sexy. Don't chase what sounds cool or impressive to anyone else, to the friend, your friends, your parents, what looks good on a resume. You have to follow your instincts especially when they're strong and you know in your bones that something is for you, I couldn't be talked out of this opportunity. And I went into it and truly I would not be sitting with you. I would not have ever been able to ascend through the ranks at Condé Nast had I not had that training from Harriet at Ebony first. You wrote a book. It's called More Than Enough. Mm -hmm. You've been working on this book for a year. Obviously, this is such an interesting and really important moment in your life. You're a really, really busy person. You're on television. You're you're co-hosting Project Runway. You just wrote a book. You're consulting. So there's a lot going on in your life. But why do you think you wrote this book? And what do you want people to come away with it after reading it? It's not just a memoir. There's something that's really poignant about how this book is a threshold for you into where you are right now. Mm. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. I received that because I also don't call it a memoir. I think it's more, it's, it's a testimony. I think a testimony is actually the perfect word. Here's the thing. I, I genuinely believe that there is power in the stories that women never tell. 
And it is something that has led me through my 10-year career as a journalist. It's been my job to pull out stories from other people to elevate underrepresented voices because I know that there are universal gems in the stories that never get told. And as I sort of transition into this next chapter of my career, I realized that I had to take my own advice and I had to be brave enough to share more of my story because we do live in this social media age where we are all watching each other's lives play out in real time, but we're only seeing the shiniest slice. We're only seeing the veneer. And I think that while that's what those platforms are set up for, we are all doing a disservice to each other by in some ways selling lies about what success really looks like. And it's an illusion. I think a lot of people are not conscious. I think some people are conscious, but others are very unconscious, as you know. Yeah. It's just like they've been living this sort of illusion of a life for so long. And it's like, I don't even think some of those people know what it is to feel like you are inhabiting yourself, like you are really of yourself. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think I personally feel like I have a responsibility because of these illusions that we're constantly scrolling. And whether we like to admit it or not, we are scrolling other people's lives to find kind of answers in our own. Yes. Right? And so I felt this personal obligation and responsibility to give more than just a fun boomerang (laughs) to the young women who have watched my career or who are maybe even just becoming aware of me because my story is so much more than just my story. It is the story of anyone who's ever been first, only, or different, Who, which is a term that Shonda Rhimes has coined in her books, Year of Yes, F-O-D. And our stories are valid, and it is important that we share the tools that we've picked up along the way. And I feel like I've been given this really rare opportunity to ascend in a world that so few of us, people who look like me, have ever even found themselves in that I don't want to be just called a history maker or a first. I don't want to be held up as a trailblazer if I'm not doing everything I can to leave signposts along the way that are making it easier and less isolating for the next person that's going to come up after me. And I haven't done my job if I'm not doing that. And so for me, this book is an offering. It felt urgent. It felt like something I had to share now. And if I have to call it a memoir, which I hate that term, it is my memoir so far. There is so much more I have to do. There is so much more I have to experience and learn and share and stories I will share across multiple mediums, TV, film, I hope more books. But this was the story I had to tell now. And I hope that it finds its tribe. I spent so much of my career just trying to get a seat at the table. And then I finally made it to the head of the table. And now I'm like, I want to just build my own tables. So one of the things that you did this year is you started doing red carpet commentary for ABC, which was amazing. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So I have a feeling about this. I don't watch those shows anymore. And there's a reason why. And it's because it's with no judgment at all, but the same people saying the same things over and over mm-hmm. about, you know, the same things about, oh my God, you look so great. What right. are you wearing? Right. And that's it over and over and over again. Or talking about the film that, you know, the person is there to promote. But 
I wanted to ask you, does it ever occur to anyone to just ask somebody how they feel? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, how do you feel tonight? Like, how do you feel like wearing what you're wearing? Because I think so often at those events, everyone looks like, not everyone, some people look like they're wearing a costume and they are just like, what am I doing here? And Mm. this like weird, it's like they're going to the prom and they get their hair done. It does Mm. seem a little bit like you've had your hair, you know, your hair and your makeup professionally done. And sometimes when you wear an outfit, it's like, or you're dressed up in a in a really sort of like, you know, big um, sort of black tie gown or something, it feels like, oh my God, am I just like masquerading as somebody that I'm not? Mm. And sometimes you're like really like, you know, in it and you're feeling it and it's just like, you know, you're wearing it and it's not wearing you. Mm. But I really want someone to start a dialogue with people on the red carpet that helps them to kind of connect with how mm-hmm. they feel in that moment. You're there presenting, accepting an award, speaking about some, you know, a memorial for somebody. And it's just strange to me that that medium has not evolved at all. Mm. I just wish that we could somehow elevate the, the discussion so it doesn't feel so superficial yeah, all the time. I mean, well, listen, I'll tell you this. That's why I'm there. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I think anything I go into, I am eager to push the conversation forward and to go deeper. That's part of my mission in anything that I do. I feel like a little bit of a secret agent. <laughs> I go into something yes. that is one thing and I try to push it to become something else that could be a more evolved version of whatever it once was. And I think the world isn't going to change until we change it. And that goes for any industry. And so when I look at opportunities, I look at them as what can I contribute to this? How can I add a level of cultural consciousness to these conversations? Who am I representing for up here? What conversations would not be had if if someone like me were not sitting here? And so it's a challenge that I love. And I don't say yes to everything. There's a lot of things I pass on because I don't want to get stuck in this kind of box of being seen as someone who's just like doing commentary about what people are wearing. That is not what I was designed for exclusively. Do you know what I mean? And and so I'm very careful about the yeses that I give and I ha- they have to be hell yeses or their noes. And the hell yeses that I've given to things like Project Runway or the Oscars are because I see an opportunity to bring an outside perspective to the table that would not be there otherwise and to go deeper within the confines of what it is, within the format of what it is. You know what I mean? For instance, like at the Met Gala this year, we're talking, we're here to talk about camp. When you dig into what camp means, there is so much history and cultural context to pull from. And so I sort of sit up there and I'm like, I'm here to help educate, to help educate, to start interesting conversations. And honestly, to elevate every black and queer person on that red carpet yeah, and to illuminate the cultural context. That's why I'm there. So I agree with you and I feel you and any medium that feels played out or like the formula is not really working anymore because we're in such a different world. We need to get in there and shake them up and make them more progressive and make them feel like they're more a part of what's happening in in this moment, which is such a specific time to be alive and to be a woman and to be empowered. 
But that's a hell yes, Elaine. That's a hell yes? Yes, that's a hell yes. From the podcast queen? Yes, yes. Well, I don't know about that. Um, you are the podcast queen. Thank you so much for having that, me. Thank you so much, Elaine Weltroth, for being on the show. It's been so wonderful to talk to you again and to have time with you. And I'm just you so too. happy for you. And congratulations on the book. It's called More Than Enough. I hope you're inspired after hearing Elaine's story. For even more unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on Apple Podcasts and rate us while you're there. You can head over to refinery29.com to find this episode and more, and make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was executive produced by Bridget Todd, associate produced by Jay Brunson and Rebecca Easley, and edited by Priscilla Mena and Anna Costanza. Copy support was provided by Leanne Duggan. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist at Argo Studios. We'll see you back here next Monday for a conversation with actor, director, writer, and showrunner Pamela Adlon on why it's finally her time. See you then. See you then.